The scripture reading is from Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the, in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws, in, uh, to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to your, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, while will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore ref refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Thank you, Gwen, and good job on those names. Let's pray together. 
God in heaven, we ask this morning that you would fill up our empty hearts with your goodness. And that we would find you to be the merciful and gracious God that you reveal yourself to be in the pages of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. According to the Bible, every human being has some level of knowledge of God. From the smallest to the greatest, from the most religious to the least, each of us knows deep down that God exists. And that may be why when trouble comes and we reach the end of ourselves and we begin to rethink everything that we thought we knew about God and everything else, rarely do we question his existence. Rarely do we question his mighty power. No, in the back of our mind, a thought begins to grow, doesn't it? How can God possibly be good? How can God possibly be good with all the things that I'm dealing with, with everything that I've seen? How can God be as good as he says he is in the Bible, given what I'm experiencing? For many, ravaged by suffering and evil, this question becomes almost an accusation. Such was the case for a young Jewish man named Eli Wiesel. Reflecting on the unimaginable evil he witnessed every day at Auschwitz and Buchenwald, he would write in 1956, quote, I no longer pleaded for anything. I was no longer able to lament. On the contrary, I felt very strong. I was the accuser, God the accused. I would venture to guess that no one in this room, no one watching online, has experienced anything comparable to what Wiesel and his countrymen experienced and he describes in his memoirs. But how many this morning have been so disoriented by loss, by grief, by evil, by layer after layer of difficulty that we ourselves have found that we're questioning the very goodness of God. Today is Mother's Day. There's a part of us on a day like today that wants to focus on what makes us feel good. Uh, we can acknowledge darkness on a different day. Uh, but it seems to me that no mother, whether young or old, is a stranger to prolonged pain, disappointment, disillusionment. Having children, raising them, watching them make their own choices, losing them, remembering them. All of these things come at a great cost that those of us who are not in that position can only begin to imagine. And that's partly why we celebrate the day at all. And so today, what I would like to do is follow the life of a mother in, in Scripture that we often are perhaps tempted to overlook. Uh, her name is Naomi. Her story is told across four short chapters. You could read all of them in less than 20 minutes. This afternoon, you go home, you eat lunch. Afterwards, as you're kind of relaxing, you could finish this entire book in less than 20 minutes. And while you could be forgiven for thinking that this short biblical book is all about a woman named Ruth, after all, that's what the book is called, what we read in these four chapters is actually more about a washed-up, embittered old woman 
who experiences a stunning reversal, a reversal that will end up serving as a milestone along the pathway toward the greatest moments in salvation history and gives us hope down to this very day, and I am not exaggerating. So this morning, what I'd like to do is, us, is for us to consider three things from Naomi's life. First of all, her situation. Second of all, her solution. And thirdly, her salvation. So consider with me in the first place Naomi's situation. Chapter 1 begins on a somber note and just gets worse for Naomi. Uh, She sums up her situation in verse 21. We just read it. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. This isn't an exaggeration. Naomi was running on empty. She was puttering back to Bethlehem on fumes, so to speak. So think about what's taken place in her life. She's empty, first of all, because of her external circumstances. Uh, Back up to the beginning of the chapter, I'll I'll show you what I mean. She was the wife of a man named Elimelech, an Ephrathite of Bethlehem. Now, based on that information alone, if you understand what that means, you'd think Naomi had it made. Uh, Names are very important in the book of Ruth. and, and, And just think about the name of her hometown, Bethlehem, House of Bread. That's what that name means. Bethlehem was known in the region for its fertile fields of golden grain, and her husband was an Ephrathite. Uh, Basically, he was uh, a member of one of the first families of Bethlehem, a sort of gentleman farmer, an aristocrat in a manner of speaking. Uh, He would have had the best tools, the best choicest land. And yet, in spite of all that, we're told in verse 1 that there was a famine in the land. Some of you have faced that sort of thing, but... Uh, living in, a, in the modern Western world as we do, uh, it's perhaps difficult for us to fully appreciate how vulnerable to starvation Naomi's family would have been. Uh, Elimelech was clearly being tested. Almighty God, as he's called in verse 20, El Shaddai, uh, the great provider, had left his people in a state of destitution. The land, think about this, the land promised to their ancestors, a land that's flowing with milk and honey, is now plagued with famine. Not only was there a famine of food, but given the time period in which they were living, there was a sort of spiritual famine taking place. This was the time of the judges. A terrifying, a godless season in the life of the children of Israel. If you were to back up just a few chapters into the, back, into the last few chapters of the book of Judges, you'd see and read about some of the most sordid and violent historical events that you could imagine in your life. There was no king in the land. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And the result of that lifestyle was obvious. So Naomi is facing a famine. She's living in a godless culture. She's married to a man whose faith, uh, when tested, falls far short. Uh, They might have been living during a time when, when there was no king in the land, but Elimelech's parents wanted him to know who was really on the throne. Think about his name. My God is king. And while his God had asked him and his family to walk through a season of difficulty and lack, Elimelech would have had occasion to remember the way that God had sovereignly protected his people through famines in the past. I mean, think about Joseph. Think about Abraham and Isaac. If God could rescue his people from famine in their day, he could do it again in Elimelech's day. So not to be too hard on this man. I mean, I haven't been in his shoes 
but he should have stayed. He should have waited on the Lord and remained in the land where God had caused his name to dwell. But instead, he packs up the family station wagon and he heads out straight for the one place that was more depraved than the land of Canaan, Moab. The the Moabites were perennial enemies of the people of God and they'd been for centuries. In fact, uh, Moses explicitly calls out Moab in Deuteronomy chapter 23. He says, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pathor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. In other words, the Moabites had tried to destroy the people of God. And we've seen many times in Scripture that God's loyal to his covenant people. You mess with them, you mess with him. He's not a fan of the kingdom of Moab. And Elimelech knew that. He must have. So this is a nation that gets called out for failing to provide bread for the people of God, and Elimelech goes there for the purpose of finding bread. How do you think that's going to work out? Well, it doesn't work out too well. So Naomi's gone from wealth and prestige to famine. She's living in a godless culture. Her husband is making faithless decisions. They unpack the car. They get started in their new life. And the next thing you know, Elimelech dies. Now she's a widow. Her sons grow up and they plant even deeper roots in the land of Moab by marrying Moabite wives and then they die. So now Naomi's completely destitute. She said goodbye to her hometown. She's buried her husband and her sons. She was empty, empty because of her external circumstances. But then note, she's also empty because of her internal perspective. She hears that God has provided for Israel And and so in the last flickers of fading faith, Naomi uh, returns to the place that her husband had taken her from all those years before, and in a stroke of providence that she doesn't initially see as all that significant, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, decides to go with her. But as she uh, gets to that little village, she walks back through the fields as she smells the freshly turned earth. And she sees the green waves of barley kind of waving in the breeze. You can just imagine what's going through her mind. Imagine walking past those fields, through the gate, past the women she had known since childhood and their disbelieving stares. Imagine hearing the chorus and their whispers. Is that Naomi? That's Naomi. Look at her. She looks horrible. She looks like she's been through the war. Where's her husband? Where are her two sons? That can't be her. Is that Naomi? Finally, she turns to her neighbors and she says, no, it's not Naomi. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Pleasant, beautiful. Call me Mara. Bitter. That's my name. The Almighty, El Shaddai, the provider, has left me empty of anything but misfortune. So you see where this situation has left her spiritually, mentally, emotionally. Never once does she question the might and the power and the sovereignty of God, but never once does she doubt his existence. She even notices God's done done something nice for somebody else in verse six. But when she takes stock of her own life, she can't see anything but loss, grief, emptiness, bitterness. 
I wonder how many in this room are living in exactly the same place that Naomi was at the end of chapter one. It's not that you've lost your faith altogether. It's not that you're plunging headlong into wickedness. It's not that you're becoming an atheist, but the tank is empty. Like, you're just, the joy's gone. The grief is overwhelming. The loneliness and the shame are a staggering weight, and you're just running on fumes. And while it's never occurred to you to question God's existence or his power every single day, you're wondering if he really cares about you. I can't tell you how many times I've been there. I know a lot of theological truth and I truly believe it, but is it true for me? Is God really good to me? Is he the almighty provider for me? Naomi's situation is that she is empty. But that's going to change very rapidly in the next few chapters in a way that I believe sets a paradigm for those of us who are running on empty today. So notice with me not only Naomi's situation, but secondly, Naomi's solution. Naomi's solution. So at the beginning of chapter 2, Naomi uh, is just sort of along for the ride. Uh, Most of you, or many of you, I think, are familiar with this story Uh, But God is working behind the scenes in tremendous ways that are just going to blow her perceptions away of who God is. So problem number one, Naomi and Ruth have no money and they have no food. Uh, Naomi owns a lot of land, but it's been kind of left alone for decades. And and so they need grain today, so that land isn't going to help them. So Ruth uh, goes to Naomi and she says, maybe, maybe it would help if I would be able to go into the fields of some of our neighbors and glean some of the grain that they're harvesting, and then we'll have something to eat. Uh, You say, what does that mean? Gleaning is an ancient Israelite custom based on Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. This is what God said in Leviticus 19. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time to pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. In other words, when you go out and and your field has produced grain or your vineyard has produced grapes, go and harvest that grain or harvest those grapes. But if something falls on the ground, just leave it there for somebody else. And don't go over too, you know, don't be too picky about what you harvest off of those branches or out of that field because the the poor and the alien, people who would have nothing, they, they need to come behind you and that, that needs to be for them. So in other words, God expected landowners to leave some of the produce in their fields for the poor and the destitute to come and gather for themselves. Now, there's a lot of financial wisdom in that that we could just take this uh, turn and, and go on a rabbit trail to talk about, but we'll leave that for another time. Uh, Ruth is in this unenviable position of needing to rely on the generosity of her neighbors in order to survive. So that's problem one. Problem two, Ruth and Naomi are both widows. They don't have, uh, they don't have a, a husband. So think about this. Here, here's Ruth. She barely speaks the language. She's, she's a foreigner. Her, her only tie to the community is an old widow woman. And remember, this is the time of the Judges. So if you go back and you read through Judges 17 through 21, and you read about the kind of things that are taking place, the kind of things that would happen, and then think about how Ruth is going to be in this field alone with all these men working around her, you can see what kind of danger she finds herself in. And yet, for all the risk, 
Ruth heads out early in the morning, and we're told in chapter 2, verse 3, that she happened to come to the field belonging to a guy named Boaz. And by the way, Boaz, Boaz, he happens to be a relative of her father-in-law. And by the way, he happens to be a godly man. And he happens to be single. And he happens to notice Ruth over in the corner of the field. And he asks his his, uh, laborers about her. And and they say, okay, she's a really hard worker. And so she happens to find herself eating lunch with Boaz and drinking wine and and just enjoying a, a delicacy, roasted grain. And she eats to the point where she literally can't eat anymore. Do you see what's going on here? God has not forgotten about Ruth and Naomi. God, he hasn't passed them over. He isn't punishing them for the decisions that their husbands made or just ignoring them because they aren't important. No, God is involved. These things didn't just happen. This is the kind of thing that takes place when you observe God's sovereign power and his almighty goodness combine to work on behalf of his people. This is what's going on. So just for a moment, take a step back with me. What's the solution to Naomi's problem? What is the solution to Naomi's problem? If you or I were in her situation, here's what we would be maybe tempted to do. We would be so many so-called Christian counselors or or life coaches or whatever will, will take you to this place, and you might be tempted to go there yourself, you're questioning God's goodness, and then someone comes along and tells you, or you have this thought, hey, let me, let me give you something that might feel like a breakthrough for you. You're suffering. That's bad. That's made you question God's goodness. But maybe it's not that God isn't good. Maybe what's really going on is that God is doing the best he can with what he's got. Maybe it's not that God isn't good. Maybe it's that in some sense, God is just not in control of your situation. Maybe uh, there are a million versions of this. Some people will tell you that God is all-powerful, but because of the free choices of man, he can't really see what's going to take place in the future, so he really doesn't know what's going to happen, so he does his best with the knowledge that he has, but sometimes even things take God by surprise. Other people will say, well, God's in process too. God's becoming, just like you and me. God's maturing. And, and part of the pain of what we're going through is part of that process of maturing. It's just, it hurts him just as much as it hurts you. Maybe it's not that God's goodness should be on trial. Maybe we should question God's lordship. And the best version of this sort of thing, I don't believe any of it. That's why I'm not very good at describing it. But the best version of this type of teaching leaves you feeling almost healed and hopeful. Like, wow, I'm going through all this suffering and pain and I've been blaming God, but really all along God has been going through this too and he's doing his best. And that just makes me feel a little bit better. And what you're left with might help you feel better in the short run, but it will destroy you in the long run. Because a God who is not Lord, a God who is not sovereign over all is no God at all. You're on your own. And your suffering is meaningless. 
No. Is that the kind of God that Naomi interacts with in these chapters? No, she's not learning that God gave up his sovereignty in order to maintain his goodness. She's learning the reality that God's sovereignty, his power, his might, his authority over all that takes place in the world is actually a, a source of great hope and confidence. And it's, it's one of the ways that he displays his goodness to his people. In all the circumstances and all the seemingly random events and choices impacting Ruth and Naomi, God is working behind the scenes to bring about a good plan. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He exists above and beyond the times and the seasons that limit us. He is the owner of all the cattle on a thousand hills and possesses limitless resources. He, he, his eyes search to and fro in the earth, beholding the evil and the good. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed before his piercing gaze. He commands 10,000 times 10,000 angels who roam the earth and heaven to do his will. There are no places you can Go to escape his sovereign care because he is omnipresent everywhere. He is utterly unmatched by the powers of evil and can never, ever, ever be thwarted. He is unaccountable even to the great and mighty kings and emperors of the earth and does everything he wants according to the counsel of his will. No one can say, what are you doing? And that means that every single event... From the blinking of your eyes to the blooming of a wildflower to the flight path of the eagle to the churns of the ocean around a pod of whales. All of it lies within his purview and he is, he's no closer to wearing out or growing tired today than he was when he created all of it. Naomi and Ruth were being reminded that the sovereignty of God was no curse, but a great blessing. And, and you'll see why in just a moment. But Ruth gleans all day, and then she beats out the grain, and she ends up with an ephah of barley. How many of you have ever had an ephah of barley? How much is that? Well, according to the footnote in my Bible, that's 22 liters of barley, and uh, my wife happens to be a baker, so I asked her, how much bread would that make you? And we figured it out. It, 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 this is enough to make more than 60 whole grain, protein-rich barley loaves. So let me just put this in practical terms. This is enough grain to feed Ruth and Naomi for a month. One day's work, a month worth of food. That is quite a barley haul. I mean, Ruth is a hard worker, but that's a blessing. You're out there gleaning just the scraps. Naomi sees this, and for the first time in the narrative, we see a glimmer of hope in her countenance. They get to talking, and she learns whose field Ruth had been working in, and immediately a, an idea begins to form in her mind. Hey, Ruth, you know, the man in whose field you were working, he's a relative of ours. You know what I mean? And at first, Ruth just kind of blows right past it. I don't know if she knew what she meant or not. But the idea is already forming in Naomi's mind. And in order to understand this, you have to get your mind around the way that the economy worked in, in ancient Palestine. Uh, the wealth of the children of Israel was tied to their land. 
And uh, the land was part of the blessing God had promised to Abraham centuries before. You didn't want to give up your land because that would be like giving up on the covenant promises. So uh, it was very important to hang on to the land. Uh, in fact, because it was allotted by God in connection with the covenant, it was not permissible to sell the land permanently to somebody else. You had to keep on, uh, hold on to it. Now, some of you own a decent amount of land, and you know that it's a, it's a blessing, but it can also be very expensive to maintain. And that was true in that day as well. Individuals sometimes find themselves in possession of land and what they really need is food and shelter. And when that happens, a person gets desperate and they might feel the need to sell the land. So God made provision for this in the law. In Leviticus 25, God tells his people that if a man has to sell his land, his closest relative needs to redeem the land. That is, buy it back. Uh, In other words, the relative would buy the land back and enjoy its produce, but keep it in the family so that that man's children could later inherit and enjoy the blessing of the land. In Ruth and Naomi's case, this is kind of gets complicated with the customs and traditions of ancient Israel, but this was combined with the need uh, to engage in what they would have called leveret marriage. Uh, This is described in Deuteronomy 25. So if a man dies before he has any children, uh, his close relative, like a brother or a cousin, would then marry his widow, and their child uh, would inherit the dead man's name and land and title and things like that. So Ruth has both of these needs, and Naomi's thinking in the back of her mind, hey, two birds with one stone. We can get this done. Here's a close relative who's wealthy enough to redeem our land, happens to be single. Ruth, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Well, not at first. So Ruth finishes out the barley harvest, but then eventually she comes around. And in chapter three, we're told how she sort of proposes to Boaz in this ancient custom that she goes through that is strange to us. He accepts And he rushes to make the arrangements the next day in this crafty bit of negotiation with a man who had uh, a claim that's closer than his was. And by the middle of chapter four, Boaz and Ruth are married. Now that's what happened, but if we're really gonna understand, we once again need to kind of take a step back. See what God was doing in Ruth's life, but especially Naomi's life. She started out bitter and empty. But she hadn't given up, and God wasn't done. And the turn she chooses to take is exactly the the turn that you and I need to take when we face the same kind of emptiness today. Say, what do you mean? Notice what gets repeated between chapters 2 and 3. I know we're moving quickly through the narrative, but look at chapter 2, verse 11. Boaz is talking to Ruth, and he's honoring her for the choices she's made to to join herself to Naomi. And he says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law... Since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before, the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So think about the imagery that Boaz is describing here. He's saying, Ruth, you and Naomi, really all of us, are like little birds. And instead of flying around on your own, you have chosen by faith to take refuge under the caring wings of God. God cares for his children like a mother hen cares for her little chicks. 
And then if you go to chapter 3 and look at what Ruth says back to to Boaz in verse 9, she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you're a redeemer. So there's this consistent theme in the decisions of Ruth and Naomi. What are they doing? What's What's Naomi's solution? She is seeking refuge under the wings of a redeemer. That's what she's doing. Instead of running away, Instead of retreating further into the emptiness of life apart from God's watch care, they are running to God and aligning themselves with his saving plan. They are seeking refuge in him. But what's the turn that she takes? It's a return. In other words, she she feels the bitterness and she feels the emptiness and she feels the loneliness. She's confused and she's confounded by the reality that God is, the God who's known to provide has actually left her in this trial And instead of running away, she says, God, I'm going to draw closer to you. As bitter and as angry, as frustrated as I am. And I'm going to take refuge under the wings of my Redeemer. And here's what she begins to find. She begins to discover the goodness of God again. She's reminded not only that God's sovereignty is a good thing, but she's reminded of why that is. It's because God is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. I mean, you read through this this, uh, narrative and you find this word over and over again. She was satisfied, 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 satisfied. Think about it. Ruth was from Moab. Moab denied entry into the community of the people of God and called specifically as a threat to the existence of the nation. And yet right here in the center of God's plan, we find a young woman who grew up in Moab but left it all behind to join herself to the community of God's people. What a gracious God we serve. Naomi's husband had abandoned the blessings of the covenant and sought relief outside the community. The children of Israel were passing through a season of extreme faithlessness, and yet in the midst of all the ways that God's people were falling short, his loyal love persisted. He was patient. He kept going with them. So friends, listen to me. God is faithful. He's patient. He's loyal to those who belong to him. And he's working to bring back the wayward and work all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. I know we brought a whole lot of baggage into this room. Maybe it's a life-dominating addiction or sin, a sin for which you've asked forgiveness once, twice, three times. We're on number 387 and you're still wondering, God, are you good enough to forgive me? Maybe it's another diagnosis. Maybe you just got your first paycheck at your new job and you're realizing, I just don't think this is enough to cover what I need to cover. Friends, you will never be content with your situation, your relationships, your finances. You'll never be at peace internally with those things until you learn to find your satisfaction in the sovereign, loyal love of God. Because even if those situations change, it's just going to be one more thing. God, you're in charge here. I know you're faithful. You're faithful to me. I don't always see it, but I know it's true. Naomi didn't see how much of a blessing Ruth was going to be. She, she, read chapter 1. She told her to go back and worship idols in Moab again. 
And I don't always see what you're doing, but I trust that you're in control and that you're going to do something that glorifies your name and that's good for me and fulfills my joy in you. What's the solution when my situation seems to be pure pain? Is it to rethink the character of God? Is it to find relief somewhere else? No, return, seek refuge under the wings of a redeemer. His loyal love is limitless. His sovereign mercy is overwhelming. Quickly, uh, we've seen Naomi's situation and talked about her solution, but notice with me in the third place, Naomi's salvation. Naomi's salvation. Uh, By the middle of chapter four, Boaz and Ruth have been married. Uh, They go on their honeymoon. Ruth gets pregnant. They have a baby boy, and the chorus of gossiping townsfolk sum up what's taking place in verse 17. A son has been born to Naomi. Now, if you were Ruth, you might be tempted to say, I take issue with that statement. This is my baby boy. But the author of the book of Ruth isn't trying to minimize her role in the birth of her own son. He's making a theological point. He's saying, do you remember how you took God to task because he was known as the great provider, but he had left you empty? Do you remember that? Well, look at you now. You're full. And we might be tempted to just kind of leave it at that, like say, hey, isn't this great? I mean, Naomi was empty. Ruth was alone. And they depended on the Lord. And then guess what? She got married. She found a husband. And they had a baby boy. And Naomi got a grandson. Isn't that nice? Wouldn't that be great if God did that for you? And if we were to take that and just kind of leave and walk away from the book of Ruth, we would be missing the entire point of why God has left this in the Bible. Because there is so much more that's going on here. If that's your takeaway, you're missing the point, and you're selling the goodness of God far short. What was Naomi's salvation? Was it, was it a baby that was born? No, it's that this baby was born. Think about this. You have to read to the end. Ruth and Boaz's baby is named Obed. And then Obed grows up and he gets married and he has a son named Jesse. And then Jesse grows up and he gets married and he has a son named David. Yes, King David. And then God makes this wonderful promise to David that he's always going to have a descendant sit on the throne. And then years later, the fiancé of one of David's descendants, Joseph, her name was Mary, receives this heavenly visitor who tells her, you're going to have a baby who's going to save the world from its sins. Think about what that means. How does God provide salvation? How does he fill up the empty heart? How does he meet us in our bitterness? Is it by tossing us a bone? Like, hey, I know you've suffered... I know you've gone through a lot of difficulty here. I'm going to throw you a bone. Give you a little bit of a blessing too to weigh, you know, outweigh the suffering. We know that doesn't work. And that's not what God does. No, God, uh, you've got to lift your gaze a little bit. He is not handing out consolation prizes for everyone who's gone through difficulty to say, okay, you've gone through a difficult time. I'll give you a husband. You've gone through a difficult time. Well, I'll give you, you're not going to get a husband, but I will fill your wallet a little bit, and maybe you can have a dog too. That's not what's going on. God's plan to deal with evil and all of its consequences, the suffering, the loss, the emptiness, the bitterness of the world, isn't just to cast a ray of sunshine over the faces of those who go through difficulty. No, it's to cast himself into the world. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You are alone, but there's no one more lonely than the one kneeling in Gethsemane. You're empty, but he wandered the desert for 40 days without food and drink. You are bitter, but he drank to the dregs the cup of the wrath of God. What is Naomi's salvation? How does, how does God fill up the empty heart? By entering the emptiness himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, the son of David. You may not know the reason why it fell on you and not on someone else. You might not see a way out. You might be overwhelmed with the waves of grief and doubt and confusion and suffering, but there is one who has been there, who has suffered a greater injustice than any. And it is through his suffering in our place, through the victory of his resurrection, that we find refuge under the wings of a Redeemer. So this morning, I wonder, are you running on empty? May you be filled by faith by the Son of God who took our place and our punishment, who rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father, who will run, one day return to receive all those who are in him. Would you bow with me now? Let's pray and thank God for his Son. God, I thank you that you didn't meet us in our suffering by throwing us a bone. By saying, here, I'll bless you too. I mean, you have blessed us in so many ways, but God, you've done so much more than that. You met us in our emptiness by entering the emptiness. And so, Father, for a moment, we just want to say thank you for Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would point our yeas toward him so that as we face some of the uncertainty and the bitterness that goes along with living in the world, that we would see your lordship and your goodness not in the abstraction of theology, but in the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to know you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.